time for short play. Alex, an FDA panel has recommended new COVID-19 treatment. The drug is administered via pill for five days and is known to be a potent mutagen. That's right, Nick. Side effects could include growing of bone claws, laser beams projecting from eyes, psychokinetic powers, forming of ice from your hands, and turning playing cards into explosive devices. Also, though, there may be a post-treatment for the bone claws using adamantium therapy, depending on one's healing speed, of course. Don't mess with the X-Men. <laughs> That's right. I want to be a potent mutagen. This is Swordplay. <laughs> we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, 1 John chapter 4. That's right, 1 John chapter 4, it only took us 10 weeks to record this. So, five episodes a year, folks, that's what you get from now on. <laughs> well, yeah, I was uh, out of town for a month, then my family was sick for a month, and so here we go. We're trying to get back on track. And we have a lot to cover today, Nick. Chapter 4 has a lot of content, so we better Indeed. just jump into it. So, verse 1, talking about uh, testing the spirits, uh, the spirits of these prophets, so what do spirits have to do with prophets in verse 1, Nick? Yeah, the text says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So that's the connection here between spirits and prophets that uh, seems to be drawn. The, again, reconstructing the historical situation, there were these proto-Gnostic teachers who were claiming to have inspiration or illumination by a spirit or even by the spirit of God. So the teacher or the the prophet brings a doctrine which he claims is of God or it's from God. And in fact, that's the way the prophetic office was executed. It was by those claiming to have the spirit of God. And it seems John's audience readily accepted the prophetic utterances of these false prophets since he commands, stop believing every spirit. It is an imperative uh, that begins this sentence here. So, one noteworthy example from our old friend Irenaeus frames this a little bit for us. Once again, he points out the deceitful heresy of Marcus, an early Gnostic heretic. And even though Marcus lived after the time of John, I believe it's instructive for the situation with the proto-Gnostics that were in John's day. But Irenaeus compares Marcus's actions to magicians before making this comment about Marcus. And I quote, It appears probable enough that this man, that is Marcus, possesses a demon as his familiar spirit, by means of whom he seems able to prophesy, and also enables as many as he counts worthy to be partakers of his charis themselves to prophesy. Charis, the Greek term for grace, which has been perverted into just another one of these uh, Gnostic eons or beings. Uh, that's from Against Heresies, uh, Book 1, Chapter 13, Section 3. So, not every prophetic utterance is of divine origin. Sometimes they are of demonic origin. So that's what I see here going on with these spirits and prophets. Alex, what say you? I think that's right. In the ancient world, across various religions, there are, within those groups, prophets, variations of prophets, mediums, seers, oracles, magicians, whatever. The common denominator between them is that they communicate something from the heavenly realm to those of us here in the earthly realm. They claim to have that ability. Sometimes they really do. Those beings, which naturally dwell in the unseen realm, 
those are called spirits. That's how they're referred to. Not all of those spirits are the same, though. Certainly the whole of Scripture would make distinction between those spirits, good ones, bad ones. Now, in Second Peter, we had a podcast which discussed prophecy. Peter defines it as men moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking from God. But we see here that there is something that could be referred to as an unholy spirit, an antichrist spirit, the antichrist. So there's a Holy Spirit, singular, but there are also... Uh, there's also the Antichrist, singular. So John speaks of these spirits, though, in plurality then. So there's going to be some uh, breadcrumbs here that I'm going to try to elaborate on and connect as we get further into the discussion. But Holy Spirit, the Antichrist, spirits who are from God, spirits which are not from God. So, Nick, are there a plurality of spirits from God? If so, what do you think they are? Yes, yeah, spirits. Uh, one one can take that word there, spirits, via metonymy. Uh, one word standing for another. And in this case, the spirits would be the prophets, whether they're false or true. So there would be prophets who are from God, and then there would be these false prophets who are not of God. Uh, and so that's just a bit of what I have to say here. I'm actually going to take a, a deep seat in the saddle here because, Alex, I think you're going to illuminate this uh, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, this may take a minute. So uh, you noted in the previous question, right, that these false prophets uh, via Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus and, and his um, explanation, they could be speaking via a spirit not from God and of demonic origin. Now, I think that is what's going on. I think there are demonic spirits which are empowering these false prophets and john is referring to that entire group as the antichrist so i'd like to to note that john you know he doesn't define a false prophet as one who can't actually prophesy uh, sometimes that happens but there are those who can truly perform the supernatural who can speak a word from the heavenly realm but you have to be careful on which side of the heavenly realm are they speaking from and of course, John doesn't want them to listen to uh, what we could call the dark side, right? The f spiritual forces of darkness. Now, we know from the Gospels that there are many demons, right? There's not just one demon. And so the identity of the spirit not from God, it could be from among a plethora of evil spiritual beings. And so I think that's why John says, okay, you got to test the spirits. Not all of them are from God. This implies that there are spirits which are from God. So do we see anything in our Bible concerning the plurality of spirits, which indeed do come from God, and I think we do. They're called angels, God's holy angels, his heavenly host. In fact, God often uses angels to send a message to his people. We see this often in the Old Testament especially, right? And the word messenger, uh, the word angel means messenger. That's a job description. He'll send uh, the angel of Yahweh to send a message, which we know is not actually even a normal angel. It's, it's Yahweh himself in visible form. You can go back to see our Angel of Yahweh episode on that. But God sent other angels too, right? He sends Gabriel to the uh, prophet Daniel. He's, Gabriel goes later to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and to Mary, the mother of Jesus. The normal understanding, I think, of God's word was that it was ordained by angels. That's what Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 53, and that the word of God was spoken through angels. That's what Hebrew writers says in Hebrews 2.2. 2. So now we have a couple ideas emerging. Here are these breadcrumbs. Here are these connections. We see that one idea says, okay, the Holy Spirit moves men to speak from God. 
we have another idea that says, well, angels ordained, delivered, and, and spoke the word of God. And this is how the prophets gave the people the word of God. And then we got another component that we could throw in there too, just for fun, right? Jeremiah 23, verses 18 through 22 says, a true spirit, uh, a true prophet has stood in God's divine counsel, has had that theophany experience, right? And if they haven't, they're not a true prophet. So how do we put all the data together? I want to propose to you that a special relationship exists between the Holy Spirit and the angels, right? So the Holy Spirit first, let's talk about that. That's the third person of the Trinity. Uh, that's that's God. Uh, it's defined uh, more clearly, or I guess it's first defined uh, most clearly at the uh, Council of Constantinople, the first Constant Council of Constantinople in 8381. But what is this idea then of the spirit working through angels? Well, a spirit from God is an angel. It's a holy angel. That angel enables the prophet to speak from God. Now, I'm not going to tell you the metaphysical mechanics of how that works. I don't know. It hasn't been revealed to us. Let's not worry about that part. But uh, there are times where it seems the angel sent from God or the spirit sent from God is said to be the Holy Spirit. And I think that's because we have representation going on. When the Holy Spirit sends the angels, the angels represent the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is working through the angels. Okay, let's look at a few examples from Acts real quick to see if this would help explain some things. You have when uh, an angel tells Philip to go to the road where the Ethiopian eunuch will be in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And then it is the Spirit who tells Philip to join the chariot in verse 29. Was it the angel or the Spirit? Assuming the Spirit there means Holy Spirit, the answer is a yes, right? Because the Holy Spirit sends the angel. So the angel acts on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius has a vision from God. He receives a message from an angel. You get that in verse 3, verse 7, verse 22. The angel tells him to send for Peter. And then when Peter is sent for, it says it's the Spirit who tells Peter, go with them, I've sent them myself. It's so chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. So who sent them, an angel or the Spirit? Assuming, you know, it means the Holy Spirit. And I would say the answer is yes. It's, it's both. One is acting as an agent of the other. So the Holy Spirit works through the administration of angels. The plurality of spirits which are from God are the holy angels dispatched under the special direction of God, the Holy Spirit. And though the working of the Holy Spirit is often mysterious, it does help me at least to fill out some of these questions about the working of the Holy Spirit throughout the ages, both in the past and today, when you see that, ah, there is this close connection between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the angels. Now this understanding, this connection, the fancy word for it in scholarship is called angelomorphic pneumatology. Or if you want, you can flip it around, pneumolomorphic angelology. And this idea, it does have uh, an appearance in the second century. You see it in the Shepherd of Hermas, this idea pops up, and you also see it in uh, second century theologian Clement of Alexandria. So very interesting to me. I know that was a long explanation, but yes, that's sort of what came to mind. I thought I'd present it out there for the audience to consider. Any thoughts there, Nick? You still awake uh, on? You upholstered <laughs> the subject. <laughs> There's a long explanation, I know, but I wanted to get it out there. Well, let's keep going about this idea concerning testing the spirits, right? Verse 1, verse 6. Nick, how did John's audience test the spirits? And then give us an update, right? How do we test the spirits today? Yeah, the, the word test originally meant like to, to test metals, uh, to test uh, their worth. And as it's used here, it means to test 
to scrutinize, to prove the genuineness of a thing. And in this case, the message brought by the Spirit is what is to be proved genuine or not. And they either did this by miraculous means, as is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, uh, to another, the work of the miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, interpretation of tongues. So uh, there's that uh, gift from the Holy Spirit. Or they could do it by comparing the message brought by the Spirit, comparing that message to the apostolic revelation, uh, specifically that Jesus has come in the flesh, as John will uh, discuss and explain in verse 2. In context, I think the latter option is best. You go back to what you heard from the beginning, as John said in 2 verse 24, and you go back to the confession that the Spirit makes, uh, which is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So uh, I think that's uh, what's going on here, what I see about testing the spirits. What say you? Yeah, I think we do see here one of the purposes from which John gives his audience uh, so many doctrinal statements, so many confessions of faith. These confessions, and hey, we're going to see another confession here in verse 14 and 15. They help the church to uh, filter out these false prophets while also safeguarding the faith once for all handed down to the saints. It's safeguarded through those confessional statements, and it separates out the false prophets from those who follow the apostolic testimony. You know, the Old Testament actually gives us some precedence for this process. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, we see that God will allow, at times, false prophets to truly perform the miraculous, but the true test comes from examining that prophet's loyalty, right? Does he exhibit fidelity to Yahweh, or does he exhibit fidelity to other gods? If other gods, then he's not to be followed. And if he's not to be followed, that turns into a new test for the people, right? Will they follow the false prophet, or will they follow Yahweh? So, loyalty is a big deal. And it's in John's day that we have a test of loyalty uh, resting upon the affirmation of Jesus' identity. Who is he? Is he God's son? Is he the savior of the world? Is he the divine life-giving logos? If you affirm these things, then you are in line with the apostolic testimony, right? That's the test here for John's audience. So test the false prophet's loyalty through these uh, doctrinal confessional statements. That was the test of the first century. It was one of them, the tests anyway. And I think that's still a test that's applicable today to the 21st century. And we'll see this again later, but I, I think throughout history, we can see that a lot of uh, false teaching does at the root eventually go back to some sort of skewing or changing of Christ's identity, right? The identity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in some way, shape, or form. And that always leads to trouble. So verse 3, Nick, what is the spirit of the Antichrist? We even got a definite article, the, this time. Yeah, nearly every English translation supplies the word spirit there. The, what John literally writes is, this is that of the Antichrist. Uh, grammatically, supplying spirit, that's an appropriate implication. And as mentioned above, understanding spirit, uh, according to metonymy, would recognize that the false prophet is the one who is of the Antichrist. Uh, indeed, as seen earlier in First John. 
the proto-gnostic teacher who was perverting the true doctrine of christ is the antichrist and in fact john says there were many antichrists in his day so that's what i see here with this spirit of antichrist business what say you uh, there are spirits belonging to the Antichrist. These spirits empower false prophets to speak as they do, perhaps to even perform miracles and signs as well. I maintain, as I proposed in chapter 2, that the Antichrist is the singular corporate title referring to the spiritual forces of darkness that are aligned against Christ and his church. The church is the singular corporate title of God's people, but we're made up of many so it is with the Antichrist being made up of many Antichrists. Among the many Christians, there were those who spoke from the spirit of Yahweh God, uh, which I think is part of the work of the angels, the prophetic work uh, in the, the ministry of prophecy. But I would agree that um, the false prophets represent the Antichrist spirit, but it still doesn't uh, remove the spiritual personal component, right? So... There is this corporate spiritual entity called the Antichrist. It's made up of all these evil bad guys in the heavenly realms, right? And the evil bad guys in the heavenly realms empower the false prophets, which are, I think, accurately labeled as Antichrists because they're part of that group, just like we're labeled Christians because we're part of belonging to Christ. That's my thought there, Nick. Any any other thoughts? Uh, nope, that's, that's good. Dragon. All right. Verse 4, verse 6, what does it mean to be from God? Yeah, little children, you are from God, says verse 4. Verse 6, we are from God. And the phrase there is ek tu theu in the original language. And it's a phrase that is used often by John in this epistle. Back in 3, verse 9, he used it twice, also verse 10. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, it's used twice, 7, it's used twice, uh, twice, and then in chapter 5, verse 1, verse 4, verse 18, used twice, and then verse 19. In addition, in the gospel, Jesus talks about how his teaching is from God. In 7, verse 17, he himself is from God, chapter 8 and verse 42, and then the one who is from God hears the word of God. And the reason people do not hear is because they are not from God. Uh, 8 verse 47, Jesus explains. So clearly then, there's the idea of being of divine source, divine origin, divine derivation. Now, pertaining to this context here in chapter 4 of 1 John, these little children have their origin or their source from God. They are children of God, born of God, as John has explained in chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. The you... You are from God. You here is in the emphatic position. And this is delineating these Christians from them. Uh, that is, the anti-Christian spokespeople, the false prophets, and the followers of them. So these anti-Christian false prophets are not from God. And therein lies the crucial difference and distinction between the true believer and the false believer. Uh, and, of course, even the prophets. It has it comes down to origin. In addition, verse 6, we are from God. And again, we in the emphatic position. Who we is referring to is debated. Some say it's the apostles only. 
Others say the apostles and all other Christian teachers, making a contrast between them and the false teachers. Option three is all Christians. And I think option three seems best since John has already affirmed you are from God in verse four, and that the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, is in these Christians. So it seems reasonable to take John as saying, we all are from God, meaning all true believers. So that's what I see here about what it means to be from God, how John is using that phrase. What say you, Alex? Yeah, I think you're right when you say John is making a distinction between origin, where someone is from, where their teaching is from, uh, where their loyalty is from. John brings into distinction a uh, difference between authority sources. There are the apostles who have received their word um, from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And there are those who receive the word of the apostles then. That harkens back to the beginning of chapter 1 in verse 3 when John says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's distinction in authority thus has implications in distinguishing one's identity. If the apostles are from God, then those who receive the apostolic word are from God as well. The audience must decide then who has the authority. Do the apostles have the authority? Are they the ones receiving uh, uh, divine origin? Or is it some other group? Uh, to be from or of God, John is saying, means to be one who follows the apostolic testimony. Verse 4, Nick, who does John refer to by he who is in the world? Yeah, the end of verse 4 says uh, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, several options present themselves based on what John has written and what he will write in this epistle. So it's been suggested Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, those are all good options for he who is in the world. Of course, you see the juxtaposition between the one who is in you and the one in the world. Now, based on the surrounding context, the one who is in you may be a reference to God, who is greater, uh, as John says in 3 verse 20. could be a reference to God in Christ, uh, as is discussed in 3.24, the first part of that verse. Or it could be a reference to the Holy Spirit of God, uh, chapter 3 verse 24 as well. Given John's Trinitarian theology, it may be that the ambiguity is intentional, so that the one who is in the Christian is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, coupled with uh, New Testament teaching elsewhere that the real battle is not with flesh and blood, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it seems reasonable that John has in mind the spiritual entity who is over those who are not of God, namely, Satan, that is the devil, that is the evil one. Uh, he is in the world, and indeed, the whole world lies in his power, as John will say in chapter 5 and verse 19. So that's what I see here concerning he who is in the world. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I agree with what you said. Um, in fact, I'll take all of your choices. I'll combine them into one kaleidoscope. Now, we've seen so far in John's letter, as we noted at the end of our chapter 3 podcast, that there are seven things that abide in us, according to John's epistle. The Word of God, what we heard from the beginning, the anointing, God's seed, eternal life, the love of God, and God himself. All of these confirm to the Christian that they are adequately equipped for the work assigned to them by the one whom they abide in. That is, we abide under the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit abide in us to equip us and empower us for their work. I proposed in earlier episodes that when the abiding language, when it points down, something abides in us, it speaks to the empowering. And when the abiding language goes up, when we abide in something, then that's speaking to the authority. We are under that authority, that umbrella of authority. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, says John later in chapter 5, verse 19. He who is in the world, as John says here, I believe is the same evil one uh, who empowers those who are in and from the world. So here we get a little more clarity, I think, about the Antichrist. Uh, you know, on the one side, we have the Holy Spirit empowering the church via the angels. And on the other side, we have Satan empowering the world via evil spirits, which is this synonymous system called, uh, this system that is synonymous with Antichrist. It's the Antichrist system. So Nick, who are the ones from the world? What does John mean by the world listens to them in verse 5? Yeah, so they uh, are the false prophets whose message finds its source in the evil one. Since the whole world lies under his powers, we've been talking about chapter 5, verse 19. So then, their message is worldly, it is secular, it is anti-Christian. Now, as we've discussed in previous episode, uh, episodes, John uses the term cosmos in a variety of ways, and that's your Greek term there for world. The world, as it is used here, seems to be the system which is hostile toward God. It is ek to cosmu, which stands in contrast to ek to theu. Uh, so the whole system, which is hostile toward God, and all unbelieving people, because as he says here, the world listens to them. So it's no wonder the world hears them. The world recognizes its own message. So you have one great big echo chamber whose very structure is fallen, the constituent members are themselves fallen, and their voices utter a fallen message. So that's what John seems to be talking about here when he says they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. It's just one giant echo chamber. Uh, that's what I see here. What say you, Alex? You know, I think that's well said. Let's shift gears here. Going to verse 7, here's a thought. Nick, what do you think comes first, the Christian's ability to love and to know God, or being born of God? This is a classic, uh, long-standing debate, discussion uh, about human nature and the abilities that many see as inherent. Are people able to make the first move toward God in and of themselves? Or does God need to make the first move, as it were, need to uh, regenerate a person so that they're able to know him, to love him, love others, uh, obey him? Does human ability to do the things God requires flow from regeneration? Or are humans able, on their own, to do what God requires prior to regeneration, to make a positive move toward God? So John writes here in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, based on what John writes here, being born of God does seem to precede loving and knowing God. 
As has been stressed throughout this study of 1 John, John's use of verb tenses is intentional. So, everyone loving, present tense, has been born, perfect tense, of God and knows, present tense, God. So at the heart of the present reality of the Christian knowing God and loving God and others, I think, would be in view there, at the heart of that present reality is the past completed action of being born of God and the present standing of having been begotten of God. That's the force of the present tense there. In other words, it's not the human's ability to love God and others which causes him to be born again. Rather, the ability to love and know God flows from having been born of God. And so that's what I see John uh, writing here. What do you think, Alex? So in a previous episode, uh, chapter 2, I propose that John is often using the word know, K-N-O-W, to know, in a covenantal sense. When Yahweh's people, when they went into idolatry in the Old Testament, it is said that they no longer knew Yahweh, but now they know other gods which they had not previously known. Now, of course, they knew of Yahweh. They knew of other gods. Uh, They knew of Yahweh even in times of idolatry. They knew of other gods even in times of faithfulness. But that's not what that means. It's talking about who did God's people know in covenant, in loyalty? That's the idea here. Now, being in covenant, knowing God, necessitates an expression of covenant loyalty. That expression of covenant loyalty takes the form of obeying God's commands, which John couches in two ideas back in chapter 3, verse 23. First, that we go on believing in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as Christ commanded. And we see that command in John's Gospel, chapter 13. This parallels what Jesus says in the Gospels, representing the uh, greatest commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think John has the intention of framing this idea in terms of ability. It is an interesting question, but I think one's ability to express their covenant loyalty is not so much measured as zero or 100, right? Not these extreme polar opposites. But I think we should see it as more uh, flexible than that. Over time, your ability to express covenant loyalty increases with spiritual maturity. And so if we were to order the events, I think it would go like this. One receives the word of life through the gospel. One is regenerated through baptism. One then goes on believing and knowing God after regeneration through a continued expression of covenant loyalty. Now, this whole conversation, especially with the you know term ability there, just seems to rub me the wrong way. It kind of brings into the equation here this Calvinistic notion that, ah, you can't even begin to receive the word of God at all because you're totally depraved, unless God has predestined you, chosen you ahead of time to be regenerated, and you just wait for that regeneration, and then you can receive the word. Now, when I see that, and I, and I hear that idea of total depravity, that reformed theology, I guess in the context of John's letter here, I just don't think 
that's where John is framing any of this from. But it is a long debate, and it has been uh, debated back and forth for several centuries now. So it is important to get it out there. Any follow-up thoughts, Nick? How far down the rabbit hole you want to go? <laughs> I don't know. You go ahead. <laughs> um, so uh, what was it? The zero or a hundred percent thing, right? Right. Um, the thing is, I think John, that's exactly how John couches it. There's either death or life. There's either light or darkness, right? There's not this, you know, kind of twilight zone that you live in where you get to, you know, increase gradually and, or there's, you know, some kind of semi-dead, undead type of realm that you get to mature and grow in. I, I, I don't think you get that for not only from John, but elsewhere throughout the New Testament in terms of uh, this ability, right? Um, and in terms of having a conversation about ability, I mean, Jesus himself talks about ability. So I, I think we can skip the whole uh, notion that this is somehow just a reformed thing. Um, it, it goes right back to Jesus, who himself talks about uh, ability. And I think I mentioned that earlier about uh, chapter 8 with the uh, out-of-the-world conversation. So uh, I do think John wrote the way he wrote intentionally in terms of having been born and now the present reality as a result of having been born and being begotten of God. Uh, so I think verb tenses matter, and so I think that's what's going on here from my perspective. And you say? So do you do you not think there is any... Uh, flexibility or vagueness or room in either before the Christian's regeneration or after the Christian's regeneration in terms of their uh, ability and or expression of loyalty? I think Scripture draws a very clear line between death and life. <laughs> that's oh, that's oh, all I have to say about that. Oh, okay. I, so the question is then, so do you, so before uh, before someone hears the word of God, right? Do they have any ability whatsoever within themselves? And I'm not saying it has to be 100%, right? But is there any inclination? Because this is a free will conversation, right? It's, it ultimately boils down to uh, defining free will. And so does does somebody have an actual notion of their own free choice being made in any degree whatsoever when they are hearing the word of God and deciding whether or not they will receive it? I would refer that uh, question to Christ, who says in John, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay. That's, that's the ability question, right? So you think the ability is zero then? I think what Jesus is saying is no one is able. So does that... Well, I just want to clarify then. So do you think Jesus teaches total depravity 
I think Jesus teaches what he teaches, and you're trying to press categories anachronistically into that mold, I think. Jesus teaches what no. he teaches, and then if you want to develop... That's uh, not what I'm trying to do. I'm saying theological conversations develop over time, right? And I'm saying Jesus says what he says. You have to deal with what he says before we want to start classifying this in terms of theological is o- language. Is it okay to use theological language that has been developed through this centuries-long conversation? Absolutely, but you first have to deal okay. with what Jesus says. Okay. So I'm asking, as you have dealt with what Jesus says, what is your conclusion? Is your conclusion that total depravity is true and that lines up with what Jesus teaches? My conclusion is what Jesus says. No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then I think this gets gets tied back to... Do you think that affirms total depravity? I, I think that's what some, where some have taken it, certainly. Is that where you take it? <laughs> I, th- I think what John writes here in 1 John 4, 7 is a, a new birth has to take place that takes us from death to life in order to borrow other categories elsewhere in John's writing and elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay. Well, if diligent listener... You are familiar with total depravity, Calvinistic teachings, Reformed theology. Uh, That theology, I think, uh, does not—I think you can make it conform to certain passages, but I don't think that's the intention of those passages. And I'd be interested uh, to go back and maybe see how this conversation develops— uh, pre-Reformation, right? So we have a conversation which we have developed terms out of over the last 400 years. I'd be interested to go back and look at the early patristic writers and see how they talk about one's ability to receive the word, uh, notions of free will, or things that would support or not support total depravity. Because this is a pretty big conversation, and it does have pretty big implications as well. Well, patristic studies may be helpful, but I prefer to actually deal with what Jesus says, and I think that's what's key here in terms of the whole discussion, is what Jesus actually says. Well, that has an interesting implication in and of itself, because are you saying that perhaps people did not really understand what Jesus was saying until the Protestant Reformation, or I until Calvinistic studies teachings? can help. I said patristic okay. studies can help, but I want <laughs> what the text actually says, which I think is what everybody should want, by the way. I can't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Of Thank course not. Much. No. No, it does start with Jesus and the text, uh, but we can't act as if uh, there wasn't a way in which the text was received and understood for a certain period of time it can be helpful, it can be beneficial, again I say, okay. but we want what the text says. That is what's primary, yes. that takes priority, that's first place. Yeah. Well, I guess I would say that there is an undefined ambiguity within the teachings of Scripture that say God is both working on drawing you to himself, but there is also an element of 
within you your own soul your own free will which uh receives what god is leading you to and so that's what i think about that and i think that ambiguity continues after regeneration that you continue to express a notion of free will loyalty right as god continues to work with you and in you and upon you among you in your community so uh i think the problem with total depravity and calvinistic doctrines is that they go too extreme they go too extreme it's that's why i kind of framed it in that it's zero or 100 just like i don't think that's the way it's represented it seems more like a a journey a process this room in which god gives you to grow any thoughts there you have a scripture for that well (laughs) um i'll take one just one yeah i would just say you know let's call that sanctification so that's Uh, after conversion by the way yeah but it still takes free will so you still have to work with god in order for sanctification to take place and that's why the hebrew writer says strive for the sanctification without which no one will see god Sanctification after conversion we're talking about the new birth the transference from death to life okay but does the does the ambiguity still exist after regeneration you can you absolutely mature and grow spiritually so i think that same ambiguity exists before regeneration that you have a text for that uh no not off the top of my head and so i think you know if we want to do proof texting then i guess we'll have to do that the next (laughs) episode text it's just (laughs) one text uh consistently exegeted through its context that demonstrates what you're saying. Well, I I would just refer to, again, the conversation which you have admitted has been going on for a long time between these two sides of what is free will, right? And so the, the ideas are there, the passages are there. The reason I don't have a text in mind right now is because we're in 1 John 4, and there's nothing in 1 John 4 that speaks to total depravity or to free will other than reflecting the love of God which is actually what we're getting into next I think God's love was reflected as an act of his own free will and when we reflect God's love it thus then is a reflection of our free will as well our will to do his will and first John written to Christians correct yes yeah, so, yeah, again, we're not talking about, in First John 4, what happens before one receives the Word of God. Because that's not John's topic, that's not his purpose. But he does talk about this new birth, right, being born of God? Yes. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts? That's all I got. Okay. Well, we got to talk about God being love. God is love because it's mentioned in verse 8 and it's mentioned in verse 16. So what does it mean that God is love? So at the front end, I'll say uh, that this is not a math equation, that 
a person can reverse. Some have, but that's not the way that this is intended to, to be taken. In other words, God is love is true, but love is God is idolatry. And I've seen some so-called theologians, uh, theologians make this kind of statement, and I denounce it as heresy. The idea that God is love, very anti-Gnostic. The Gnostic would agree, God is spirit, an immaterial being, no problem with that. Uh, the Gnostic would agree, God is light, well, yeah, immaterial. But God is love? Now, that is foreign to Gnostic philosophy and the Gnostic heresy, which also indicates that the proto-Gnostics of John's day would have recoiled at this as well. Uh, so, grammatically, there is no interchangeability uh, in this phrase. So you can't go from God is love to love is God. Not to mention, uh, the previous verse says love is from God. In verse 7 there, it has its origin. It has its source from God. So uh, this is the theological statement. God's nature is love. This is rooted in God being personal, being active, uh, living in dynamic and practical ways. Smalley uh, highlights this in uh, Word Biblical Commentary uh, that he wrote. On First John, so so all of God's activity, whether in time or eternity, is loving. Whether it be God's action in saving people in Christ, which uh, I don't think anybody has a problem with seeing that as loving, or in sending the disobedient to hell for eternity, which we no doubt struggle to see as loving, and yet it must be since God is love. All of God's actions are loving, for He is love. Whether our finite minds can fully comprehend it or not is another question. So that's what I see here. Alex, what do you think? What does it mean that God is love? Well, there is a truest sense of love, an ideal love, the essence of love, that for the Christian has its origin in God himself. And you noted that. But how do we come to know this ideal love? And how do we emulate it ourselves? Now, I agree that the phrase, love is God, is not true. However, when the unchristianized person says such a thing, that love is God, it does reveal something about humanity. And I think it reveals that we indeed have the ability to detect God's presence in the world. When someone senses even the slightest touch of an ideal love, it strikes them, it attracts them. And beauty does the same thing, by the way. And there's the touch point in which we can bring the gospel and tell that person that love is not God, but you're also not far off in your senses, for God can't help but be revealed in the things which come from his nature. Christ is the exact representation of the Father in his nature, Hebrews 1 verse 3, and he reveals the Father to the world, John chapter 1 verse 18. Now that revealing, it continues. It continued through the apostles. It continues through those who receive the apostles' word that the world would know that they are Christ's disciples by the way they love one another, John 13, 35. And John will say in verse 17 here in 1 John 4, that as he is, as God is, that is love, so are we in this world. If God is love, then we are the love of God in this world. So what is the love of God then, Nick, in verse 9? Yeah, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world uh, so that we might live through him. The word love is going to show up 
approximately 32 times, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, and running all the way into chapter 5 and verse 3. It'll show up a total of 43 times in the entire epistle. Aiken in the New American Commentary identifies these figures. Clearly, love, generally, is a dominant theme in 1 John. Specifically, in view here, is God's love, here in verse 9. A love God expresses as an agent. So, he is not only the source or originator of love, he has love, he expresses love, God loves and that love of God can be and has been revealed. It's, uh, it, my English standard says, made manifest in the incarnation. That is when God sent his only son, his unique son. I prefer that reading, and we'll explain why in the next question. But God sent his unique son. Uh, that's the revelation of it. Now, the object of the revelation of God's love is us. Uh, God revealed his love to us. Uh, or among us, uh, verse 9 says there. And some say the referent of us is uncertain. However, since in this, the first uh, uh, bit there, in uh, uh, the, the latter half of the verse, uh, that, that God sent his Son, uh, since in this points to what will come in at the end of this verse, so that we might live through him, it seems reasonable to understand us as the same group that live through him, that is, Christians. So God's love to us revealed in the Father sending the Son into the world for the purpose of living, dying, rising, being exalted, is so that Christ's people might live through him. So uh, that's what I see going on here with the love of God. Alex, what do you think? John will say later that God first loved us in verse 19. God's loving loyalty was expressed in action, the action of sending his Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world through the incarnation and the glory of the crucifixion. John already said in 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for all of us. Therefore, we ought to lay down, down our lives for our brothers. God's love expressed through Jesus set the example by which we should love one another. As I have loved you, says Jesus in John 13.34. So I think the love of God here in verse 9 then is Jesus. Now, also in verse 9, it calls Jesus the only begotten Son. What does only begotten Son mean? Yeah, my English standard, like I said, says his only Son. Uh, and this is the only usage of the word monogenes in First John. It is used in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, 3, verse 16, also verse 18. And it's also used there in describing the Son of God. In John 1, in verse 18, it is used to describe theos, uh, God. And while it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, John is the only New Testament writer to use the term to describe the relationship between the Father and the Son. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint, and it's used to translate uh, Yahid in Judges 11 and verse 34 in describing Jephthah's daughter as his only begotten. It's also used in Psalm uh, 21, verse 21, also 34, verse 17, and it's used there in parallel with the words uh, soul or life. And the same Hebrew term is also translated agapetos, or agapetos, uh, beloved, which may denote a conceptual connection between these Greek terms, monogenes and agapetos. So, 
While John uses the term the most, it is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Luke describes the widow of Nain's son as her only son. Jairus' daughter is his only daughter. The demon-possessed son is the man's only child. These are all in Luke. Chapter 7, verse 12, 8, verse 42, 9, verse 38. Isaac is Abraham's only son in Hebrews 11 and verse 17. And Cruz, in his commentary, identifies that the stress in each of these cases is on the child being the only child, the child's onlyness. They are without siblings. Now, the word itself, monogenes, is a compound word. It combines uh, the prefix mono, meaning only, and the term genos, meaning kind. Some have thought it was a combination of mono and genao, uh, which means birth, but I think the former seems more likely, that it is the only kind. So taken together, uh, we see that the word denotes a unique child. Even though Abraham had other sons, he had Ishmael. Isaac was the unique son of promise. We also see, uh, while they are distinct terms, the connection to beloved, I think, accentuates the relational component of the term. So, John uses the word monogenes in order to accentuate the intimate relationship between the father and the son, while also accentuating the one-of-a-kindness, the uniqueness of the son. So what does it all mean for us? Well, only through the unique son do we find new life. When we are united with the unique son in the new birth, we become the begotten of God. In other words, we unite with the only begotten to become the begotten of God. We then can enjoy relationship, fellowship with God, even as the son enjoys fellowship, relationship with God. So that's a long way around the mountain in terms of only begotten in its term there, what it means specifically for Christ and what it means even for us. What do you think, Alex? Well, I think that was a good explanation. I like the definition of unique, one of a kind. Um, that is probably the best idea. Uh, Yahweh God, he does have others who are called the sons of God. Uh, sometimes that's referring to angels, at other times humans, but none of those sons are the unique, one of a kind son, which is Jesus. So verses 10 and 19, we have another idea here uh, about God loving us first. Why did God first love us, do you think? Yeah, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and to send to be propitiation for our sins there in verse 10. And then also verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God's love is always primary. This is because God is love, and since God is from everlasting to everlasting, so his love is an everlasting love. Uh, those are uh, taken from Psalm 90, verse 2, also Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. God is the ultimate source of all love, including our love for him. So God's love for us necessarily precedes our love for him. Indeed, John affirms that uh, we did not love God. Prior to conversion, we were weak, ungodly sinners. We were enemies of God. We, were, uh, we had darkened, foolish minds that were hostile to God. And this is just Romans 5, verses 6 uh, through 8, and also 8, verse 7. And yet, when we were unlovable, God loved us and sent his Son into the world to be propitiation for our sins. If you want a deep dive on propitiation, you go back to chapter 2 in our episode when we covered that. Now, in love, before the foundation of the world, God predestined us for adoption. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. 
That God loved us from eternity is a biblical fact. Why he should love us is not the result of anything in us. The reason for God's love for us is found exclusively in him. The revelation of his love in history, in the atonement, the Father sending the Son as propitiation for our sins. It's an act of grace, and it is the accomplishment of the divine intention. And so, therefore, God is glorified in the Son, satisfying the wrath of God for the sins of his people on the cross. Again, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Beautiful, glorious gospel. Uh, So uh, that's what I see here. Alex, why did God first love us? Yeah, I want to dig in a little further into that why question. Why did God first love us? Uh, Love comes from God, but what are his intentions, his reasoning for loving us? Let's do a little armchair philosophy. First, it would seem that God exists in plurality from eternity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're always there together in community. So then, in the mind of God, there was an idea, an idea called humanity. And apparently God did not see fit to continue on existing without us, without humanity. He could have, but he chose not to. So the idea of humanity then in the mind of God is also then the ideal humanity, the ideal humanity. Second, when God created the heavens and the earth, crowning such creation with the bringing into existence of humanity, God looked at all he had made and called it good. The ideal was off to a good start. But third, we see the ideal did not last long. It degenerated so badly that God truly regretted having made man on the earth, Genesis 6-6. So in conclusion then, I think that God first loved us because he is still in love with the ideal humanity that he had first in his mind. This ideal humanity, it was made reality through the incarnation, through the word becoming flesh, through Jesus Christ. And the continuing of that ideal humanity takes form in those who are transformed by a continued belief and loyalty in Jesus Christ. The culmination of that ideal humanity will take form in the new heavens and new earth and the resurrection. God loves us yesterday, today, and tomorrow because he still sees the ideal being unfolded through the scheme of redemption. So it's not so much that we're unlovable, but it's that There is still the ideal which God loves, and he knows it's possible because of the work which he accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, how does God's love show us to love one another in verse 11, Nick? In verse 7, it was an exhortation. Let us love one another. Now, in verse 11, it is a duty. We ought to love one another. We'll run across the phrase again in verse 12, where it's a a hypothetical, if we love one another, and then the rest of the verse. So John is upholstering the subject quite nicely. Again, God is the ultimate source of love in as much as he is love. John will say we love because he first loved us, as we've uh, discussed briefly in verse 19. Here, John appeals to the manifestation of and the demonstration of God's love as the motive for our love for fellow Christians. This is a recapitulation 
of what our Lord said the night before the cross. Jesus appeals to his self-sacrificial life and death as the ground for the love his church is to have for one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13, 34-35. The great sacrifice of the Father in giving and sending his unique Son as propitiation ought to impress our hearts so that we similarly love our siblings. The great sacrifice of the Son of God in willingly giving his life in violent death to save his people from their sins is the impetus for the kind of love Christians are to have for one another. And the love of the Father and the Son it presents the Christian with the continuing obligation of love for one another. You, we ought to love one another. So once again, we see John's uh, Trinitarian theology bleeding through in all of this uh, in terms of how uh, God's love shows us how to love one another. Uh, that's what I see here. Alex, what say you? I think God's love shows us how to love one another in three overarching ways uh, here in John's epistle. First, God, uh, his love was manifested in action. He sent his son. Second, God's love manifested in sacrifice. He laid down his life for us. And third, God's love manifested in his abiding with us. Uh, we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So now we can love one another in the same way. Our love must take action, not with word and tongue only, but indeed in truth. Chapter 2, verse 18. Our love must be sacrificial. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Chapter 3, verse 16. Our love must continue to abide with one another. Right? Speaking of those, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Chapter 2, verse 19. So there are ways in which we emulate then the love of God, having come to know the love of God. So Nick, in verse 12, it does say something about no one ever having seen God at any time. Is that true? Has no one really ever seen God at any time? Because there are examples, aren't there, of people seeing God in the Bible? Yeah, this is an interesting question here, because uh, well, let's take a deep dive here on the text real quick itself. Uh, God is in the emphatic position, and also there's no article before God. Now, it's common in the New Testament to see ho theos, which is just their way of talking about God. And in fact, just a little later on in this same verse, uh, you do see it there, ho theos, uh, in hemin. So uh, it doesn't have the definite article, here, definite article here, and I believe that's intentional. Here's just theon. No one has ever seen God and God's character, his nature, his essence is what is being emphasized uh, and stressed here. No one's ever seen deity in its essence, its glory, its majesty. John makes a similar statement at the beginning of his gospel over in uh, John chapter 1 and verse 18. And uh, Alex, I'm sure you've got that committed to memory, right? You want to rattle that one off real quick? Which one? John 1.18? Yeah. Uh, no one has ever no one... seen God at any time, but the only begotten God is in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him. There it is. No one, so he has a similar statement there, and also the explanation of the revelation of uh, God through Christ. So, okay, what about those examples then, where people seem to see God in the Bible? Well, what's going on is Moses, since, since no one can see the unbridled glory and majesty of the essence of God, Moses will see the backside of God. 
Jacob will wrestle with the angel of Yahweh, a theophonic experience. Ezekiel will see, don't miss this, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh, Ezekiel 1 and verse 28. To see the the essence of deity, the full glory of God, that would result in death. We're told as much in Exodus 33, verse 20. Paul says, we are unable to see the brilliance of God's glorious essence. He lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16. So I think that's what's going on here in terms of what John is communicating and how it fits in the context of Scripture at large. Uh, What do you think, Alex? This profound statement of no one ever seeing God unfiltered then begs the question, how do we see God and come to know him? Because John says we do. So as you mentioned, John's prologue helps us with uh, that answer in verse 18. The only begotten, unique, one-of-a-kind God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Philip, he asked to see the Father once, and Jesus replied in John fourteen nine, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So uh, let's follow uh, what I see as a hall of mirrors then. Christians are reflecting Jesus Christ when we love one another as Christ loved us. But Christ is reflecting the Father. So how do we see the Father? It's through each other in those moments of Christ's likeness. And those moments, that's what I refer to as the ideal humanity. Now, in verses 13, it says, uh, why does John mention God's abiding spirit again? He already talked about that in 324. What is going on here, Nick? Yeah, back in 324, the emphasis seems to have been on the point of conversion. John there uses what's called the aorist tense, and that is uh, typically the uh, snapshot of a past event. Right, kind of like a Polaroid type thing, but um, even though I guess Polaroids don't exist anymore. But anyway, um, so when we are baptized, we receive the promised Holy Spirit in that event. Or to use John's language, when we are baptized, God gave us his spirit. Here in 4.13, John uses a different verb tense, and again, I'm persuaded it's, it's intentional. The perfect tense is what John uses here for the fact that God has given us of his spirit. This is the tense of past completed action with present continuing results. And so God has given us his spirit, and we currently possess God's spirit. So uh, just a a subtle shift in the emphasis here, but uh, God's spirit really does abide in us. Uh, That's what I see. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, that shift of emphasis then from a past completed action to the ongoing reality, I think that tells the Christian something important. God's not done with us yet. As we continue in loyalty to Jesus and express that loyalty in our love towards one another, we become closer to that ideal humanity in the mind of God. We become sanctified. We weren't zapped into sanctification. It unfolds through the abiding presence of God's Spirit in us and among us. That abiding of God's Spirit, by the way, that's no small doctrine. That uh, is important. The Spirit of God has always been at the center of God's life-giving activity. When God brought life uh, in the creation account, right, of Genesis 1, where was the Spirit? 
He was abiding over the waters uh, like a hen hovering over her eggs, uh, like uh, brooding, right? Waiting for life to emerge. It's no wonder then that John records Jesus as saying, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3 verse 5. And so now we have a recapitulation of creation then in our own uh, conversion process. The Holy Spirit, he abides over the waters of our baptism and continues then to abide in the ones whom he gave life to through that water. Now in verse 14, why does John emphasize the Son as the Savior? Yeah, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John uses the same title in his uh, gospel over in John 4, verse 42. Jesus is the Savior of the world. So John, he may be waging war on two fronts with this uh, particular appellation for Christ. The proto-Gnostic heretics, they have been, uh, may have been muttering the roots of what would be full-blown Gnostic error concerning soter, uh, which is your Greek term for savior. Uh, Irenaeus identifies several strands of Gnostic teaching which incorporated a savior complex. One example is from the uh, sects belonging to uh, Barbalos and Borbor. Uh, these particular sects have several different luminous beings, but the great and foremost is Charis, Grace, whom they represent as Soter, that is Savior. And this is an Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 29, verse uh, Section 2. Whatever early error the proto Gnostics had developed concerning Soter, John confronts or else prophetically rebukes the coming error. Either one of those are good options, I think. That's one front that he may be waging war on here. The second is the pagan world. It was rife with saviors, and those saviors were both gods and men. The Roman imperial cult was in the habit of claiming the past Caesars were saviors. In fact, Caesar became known as, ready, the savior of the world. And so John is confronting the pagan notion that... uh, any person or any being that claims to be Savior other than the one true and only Son of God simply is a false Savior. Uh, the one true only God sent his Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. So that's what I see uh, maybe going on here with what John says here about the Son as Savior of the world. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think that's right. And we're getting into another confessional statement of doctrine in verses 14 through 15. Now, obviously, the false teachers, they have messed with the identity and nature of Jesus Christ, which is often throughout history at the root of most false doctrines. The Father sent the Son. The Son is the Savior. Jesus Christ is that Son of God, God the, the Son of God the Father. So, verse 15, it kind of begs the question, who in their right mind then would say amongst these Christians that, yes, we have the truth, and in fact, Jesus is not the Son of God. I mean, that just seems like a, it's like obvious, so obvious to get rid of. So what do you think John is talking about? Yeah, this seems to be more of John addressing those whose walk does not match their talk. So while they may have professed uh, at some point in the past, it is an aorist tense verb there for uh, homologeo, uh, They may have said in the past, Jesus is the Son of God. Their practice doesn't match. 
they do not abide in God's love. And that's a present tense verb there for abide or remain or stay in God's love. And given the greater context, uh, maybe they, they don't love their siblings. Uh, that's a real strong emphasis here in this whole section. So it may not be a, a function of not having made the confession as much as it is a denial that they made the confession uh, in the past, but based on their life, they are actually denying him. And by their disobedience of not remaining in God, they are rejecting their original confession. Uh, so that's what I see here as to maybe the why. What do you think, Alex? So it sounds like in other words, uh, John is calling these faithful Christians confessors. They're those who live out of God's commands in keeping with their doctrinal confession. Well, uh, verse 17, there is something that gives us confidence on the day of judgment. What do you think that is John refers to? Yeah, by uh, verse 17, by this love, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There it is. Confidence on the day of judgment. It, com that confidence is not due to anything we do or anything in us. Uh, indeed, we do not perfect love within ourselves. Uh, the idea here of perfected love and love being perfected is a perfect passive verb. Uh, and that makes it evident that this is something that God does. Uh, also, we don't express love perfectly. Only God flawlessly expresses love. And so several uh, key points throughout this section, I think, bring this into clear view. We have God's essence as love back in verse 16. We have the fact that as Christ is, so are we the beloved of God in this world, uh, verse 17 talks about. God first loved us in verse 19, and God's love is presently among us. The love that God has for or in us, as is talked about in verse 16. So in love, God sent his son as propitiation for our sins. We saw that back in verse 10. And then in love, God sent his son as savior of the world, uh, verse 14. And in love, the punishment due us for our sins came upon Christ, so that fear of judgment for those sins would be removed, thereby bringing us peace. Now we stand as the beloved of God, in whom God has perfected his love and is perfecting his love. And it is only because of what God did and what God is doing that we have confidence on the day of judgment. Uh, one more thing. We have come to know, uh, John writes here. Uh, we have come to know. It's a perfect tense. Uh, and therefore, not only have we come to know, but we continue to know uh, these things. This is, by the way, Gnosko is experiential knowledge of God's love. Uh, we have come to we have come to believe also is uh, related here as well, uh, and so uh, another perfect tense verb indicates that we have not only come to but we continue to rely upon God's love, and so the abiding reality of God's love among us enables us to grow in our knowledge of God and our faith in God, and so as we abide in His love, we come to understand Him more, and in turn, the more we come to know Him, the more we rely upon Him and trust Him, and so our faith uh, continues to grow in all of these things. So uh, that's a bit on verse 16 as well, the context. So, uh, but that's what I see here in terms of confidence on the Day of Judgment. Alex, what say you? Yeah, John has already mentioned uh, that which can give the Christian confidence before God. It was in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And it said, When the Christians love each other in deed and truth, not just in word or tongue, 
This gives our hearts assurance. It's not a false assurance. It's not an arrogant assurance. It's not a self-entitled assurance or a works-based insurance. The humble service that we, offer, that we offer in acts of love towards each other are to be taken as visible manifestations of our true loyalty to God. And those moments are what John wants his audience to remember. Not the moments when we failed or when our heart condemns us, but those moments in which we truly expressed our faith and loyalty towards Jesus Christ. Those moments are what God sees as believing loyalty, and he reckons it to us as righteousness like our father Abraham. John says here in verse 17, as he is, so also are we in this world. Let me back up one verse in verse 16. As he is, what is that? God is love. As he is then, so are we in this world. We, Christians, are God's love manifested in this world. It starts with Jesus Christ as the fountain, but it continues through all those who receive him. Christians are the love of God in this world. The world comes to know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. So what is perfect love then, Nick, in verse 18? Yeah, so to talk about perfect love, there needs to we need to back up and talk about love and fear and the connection between love and fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You see the connection there. And fear here is phobos. Uh, we get all our phobias from this, right? Um, fear can be either good or bad. It can be expressed as either reverence and respect or fright and dread. Contextually, what is in view here in terms of perfect love casting out fear is the latter, fear expressed as dreadful fright. Christians are to have a healthy, reverential awe and respect for God, and God's perfecting of love within the believer would not drive that out. So perfect love cannot be separated from God's perfecting of love in us. One writer put it this way, love has been made complete or perfect and exists in its finished reality. God is the one, of course, who brings that to completion. This is a passive voice verb. The ongoing mutual abiding of God in the believer and the believer in God allows God to bring to full expression his love in us, which we then, in love for God, express to others. Now back to that dreadful fear idea, that kind of dreadful fear would be cast out by perfect love, which is... Uh, uh, complete, that perfect love is complete, in that it produces new desires, new affections within the Christian to keep God's commands, uh, namely, in the context here, love one another. This is vital to the whole argument John is making. God loved us first, as he said in verse 19. And if we claim to love God, but hate our siblings, as he's going to talk about verse 20, uh, we, we do not love one another, then we're actually demonstrating that he is a liar and are, we're not keeping his commands, as he says back in 2 verse 4. And so such a lack of love, that leaves us subject to judgment and uh, punishment away from God. And I think that's the eschatological import of uh, what John is saying here with uh, punishment. Fear has to do with punishment in verse 18. The true believer, though, who is in close communion with God, God abides in him and he in God, as is discussed in verse 16. Uh, the true believer who is allowing God to perfect his love in uh, him or her so that they love their siblings as they ought. That true believer is free from the fear of punishment. This is because he knows God punished Christ in his place on the cross of Calvary. God in his son made propitiation for our sins, which means the punishment for our sins, the believer's sins, has been satisfied. What was it that Isaiah says? The chastisement that brought us peace, uh, it fell upon him. 
Yeah, this was all even predicted long ago. So how could the Christian, in humble gratitude for what God has accomplished in Christ on his or her behalf, how could the Christian not love his fellow siblings in light of all this? So that's what I see here about perfect love. What do you think about perfect love, Alex? So what is perfect love? In essence, I would say that perfect love is that love which we see ourselves expressing more and more towards each other as we grow in Christ. And I would link that to our sanctification. Uh, it may be that the new Christian still, uh, still fears punishment, but over time, that fear is replaced with a godly confidence after having known the abiding presence of God's Spirit through trials and tribulation. I think there is a progression that the Christian experiences that moves out of that phobos, that fear, not the reverential fear you spoke of, but the fear of punishment, uh, the shaming, right, the, the undeservedness. And there's a proper place for humility, but there is a place, I think, in which the Christian moves from that to closer covenantal relationship with God, which brings about, again, that experience of God remaining with you as you go through trial, as you go through tribulation, the ups and downs of life, as you continue to have those moments of loyalty expressed towards him, those, those watershed moments in your faith where you make those decisions to be obedient to Christ. That journey is a beautiful uh, journey that God is bringing us through. And it uh, reminds me a lot of, I think, also of marriage, right? And so, you know, my marriage with my wife, I don't, uh, I'm sure there are things that I do to offend her on a daily basis. Perhaps there are things uh, she does to offend me, but we don't, we don't have a list that keeps that, right? Because we already have our covenant commitment loyalty to each other. And so it doesn't even matter because over time we grow closer to each other. And that relationship, I think, is the relationship God would want us to see with himself. I think that's why the church is called the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 and why Paul calls that such a great mystery. So verse 19 then, who or what do we love, Nick? Yeah, we love because he first loved us is how my English standard reads. But there is a noteworthy textual variant here, which is preserved in uh, the Old King James and the New King James. Both of them read, we love him. Now, uh, Codex, uh, Codex Sinaiticus reads, we love God, as do some of the uh, other translations, uh, like the Vulgate, the Syriac, the Bahiric. Uh, but there is a ninth or 10th century manuscript called Codex Athus Lavrensis and the majority text that uh, these, these read, we love him, and the majority text is the text of the King James, also New King James. So we love him, and it is a reference to God. Uh, that's the idea there. Codex Alexandrinus and Codex Vaticanus, the other early witnesses uh, of the text, uh, they uh, follow, as, long, uh, as well as some other Vulgate traditions, they have a reading which is contained in most uh, English Bibles today, we love, just we love. So what do we make of all these uh, textual variants? Well, I, I think the variants, uh, these insertions, were done 
with the intent, seemingly, to clarify the object of the verb. Uh, we love. Well, we, who do we love? Right? Uh, so in order to, to clarify that, they inserted uh, him or they inserted God in order to make that clear. However, John seems to have left the text ambiguous on purpose. He probably had both God and other believers in mind. And so he wrote in a general enough way to include both by just writing, we love. So uh, who or what do we love? I think, yes, uh, God and our fellow siblings is the answer based on the context. What do you think, Alex? Uh, yes, I think if that's the case, then that ambiguity, it does drive home the point that our love for God cannot be separate from our love of one another, of our fellow believers. So that leads us to our last question, verses 20 through 21. Nick, why is loving God dependent on loving your brother? Yeah, I guess we could ask it another way, right? How do you prove that you love God, right? Uh, the same God who is invisible, uh, whom we have not seen, nor do we presently see him, and that's the force of uh, God whom we have not seen. At the end there of verse 20, it's a perfect tense verb. It may be possible to claim to love God and deceive people with such a claim, since it's difficult to prove the validity of a claim inasmuch as God is not seen. However, John identifies how genuine love for God can be demonstrated. A person's love for the invisible God will visibly manifest in that person's life in how they treat their fellow siblings in Christ. So God and brother are uh, set apart here in order to emphasize that a Christian will have the same love for both. Love for God and hatred for the children of God cannot exist together in the same heart. So that seemed to be the connection here, the why. Uh, Alex, what say you? Yeah, when we fail to love one another, we fail to see the ideal humanity that God is in love with, which took on physical form through Jesus Christ. There are moments when we can see Christ formed in each other. Look for those moments, hold on to those moments, and you'll have an easier time loving each other. And that's it for First John chapter 4. Final thoughts, Nick? Not our longest, but uh, certainly went the distance today. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Sidetracked on free will again. <laughs> that always takes a good 20 minutes. That old chestnut. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, how can our audience members help the podcast, Nick? Gracious. Uh, right here. Let's see. You can Listen, if you have a question, uh, you can send it into the t uh, Swordplay text line. You can text it in. 316-247-9673. That is 316-24-SWORD uh, if you have a question. Uh, in the meantime, can't get enough of that sword play action? Go into uh, the archives. Uh, you can find us on all the major streaming platforms like uh, Apple Podcast, Google Music, Spotify, uh, and Amazon Music. Uh, we are in a number of streaming platforms. Feel free also while you're there to leave a review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars for a review. And uh, if you leave a comment there, uh, a written review, we'll read it online, uh, on air for you uh, here on the broadcast. And, um, and I guess you could put a question there if you really wanted to, and we'll answer that on air too. 
Uh, we do have, we've had a number of questions come in. We are making progress in getting around to those. And so uh, be on the lookout. Uh, those of you who've sent questions in, diligent listeners, we will be answering those. Uh, uh, fear not. Uh, we will get to those in uh, due time. Uh, but in the meantime, if you have more questions that you'd like to send in, again, text them in or Alex, where can they send them? Yeah, you can send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Um, we love to hear from you. Also, we are not forgetting about the uh, free swagger giveaway. It's just been, you know, a couple months of hard uh, travel and sickness on my part. So uh, we'll get those uh, drawings going and announce the winners. And so keep leaving reviews on uh, preferably Apple Podcasts, but whatever your listening device is, leave a review so others will find the podcast, find it helpful to them uh, as well. We thank you for hanging in there with us. It was a long episode, but... I think there was important things to be discussed. We will finish up First John next time, First John chapter five, uh, on next next episode. So thanks for tuning in uh, to Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on Scripture.